Welcome to Spirit Matters. This is Phil Goldberg on behalf of me and my co-host, Dennis Ramundi. We're on hiatus now in uh, the summer of 2022. So we're posting some interviews I recorded with leading spiritual teachers last year. They were part of a special series on Unity Online Radio under the title of my book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. I'm sure you'll find them illuminating and inspiring. Enjoy. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World You can have inner peace and clarity even in the midst of chaos. Welcome to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with Phil Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to this special series of programs named after my most recent book, our goal is to bring you expert advice and guidance for remaining spiritually secure and strong in the most challenging times, not just the unprecedented pandemic we've been going through together, but any time the trials and tribulations of the crazy world arise in your life. Every episode features a wise, compassionate, experienced spiritual teacher. I've drawn from a broad range of traditions and paths, and I encourage you to write down any ideas that resonate with you so you can develop an inventory of practices to draw from when you need a spiritual boost and a way to reconnect with our divine source because we all have within us a sanctuary of peace and a fortress of strength, not something we have to build or look for. It's already present at the core of our being as our truest, deepest, highest self. All the spiritual traditions have the primary purpose of helping us realize what we truly are, eternal beings, with an earthly curriculum. The more we connect to that infinite reality, the better equipped we are to face our challenges with dignity and take action to make the world a little less crazy. That said, let me introduce today's guest. Rami Shapiro transcends the usual spiritual categories and designations. He's a rabbi grounded in Jewish tradition, also an initiate of the Ramakrishna order of Vedanta Hinduism, and something I didn't know before, a 32-degree Scottish Rite Mason. He's a truly interspiritual teacher, the author of about three dozen books, including Perennial Wisdom for the Spiritually Independent, How to Be a Holy Rascal, and his latest, Surrendered. 
He's a contributing editor with Spirituality and Health magazine. He hosts two podcasts, and he's the co-director of the One River Foundation, which hosts too many programs for me to mention here. Welcome, Rami. Thank you, Phil, and my pleasure to be here. I always love talking with you. We'll have a good time. Let's begin with a personal question. Uh, we've all been through the common experience of pandemic this last year. Did you find it personally challenging? And any did anything about it and your response to it surprise you in any way? Yeah. Um, I would say, let's start with the easy part. It ruined my income stream, right? I, I make, in the past, pre-COVID, I made my living traveling around the world teaching and getting paid for it. And when that was no longer possible, my income dried up. Uh, I mean, Zoom was available, but it's, I, I never could, could, I never feel comfortable charging uh, for a Zoom experience, <laughs> what I might charge for an in-person weekend. So, so my my finances took a huge hit. So that was that was the only, I guess you'd say, hardship for me. I, it sounds terrible because I feel so privileged. Yeah. But but the truth is that being forced to stay home and indoors simply removed the anxiety I would feel about having to go outdoors <laughs> and, and, you know, deal with people I didn't want to deal with. So it was really, it was really a, taking a, a load off of me. But on a more positive note, it really stripped away everything I didn't want to do. It became very clear to me, as it has been for most of my life, but it made it all the more clear that what I love to do is to be alone uh, my, my personal spiritual practices are not community-based, so they, they did not suffer whatsoever. And my writing, which is my primary passion, uh, I mean, that's a private enterprise. That's something I do by myself, and I could do it without a lot of interruptions because COVID removed all those interruptions. I know exactly what you mean. I had to cancel a bunch of travel and uh, actually book promotion and uh, found myself doing what I love best, staying home yeah. and, write, and writing. Uh, and now that things have started to open up, I thought, well, now I can do what I was going to do last fall and I can do this and that. And I thought, nah. <laughs> Is, I mean, that's interesting because I'm having the same experience. Do I want to go back? I mean, yeah. I'm doing a, a retreat, my first in-person retreat in such a long time here in uh, Tennessee at, at St. Mary's Retreat Center in Suwannee, Tennessee. And I, I used to go there three times a year. Then they had to shut down and they're trying to reopen. And they asked if I would basically, you know, be part of the 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 reopening faculty to try to get people back into the habit of going. And, and that's why I'm going, because I love the place. I love the people. But if it was, if it was, a, you know, a, a, an institution I wasn't already associated with, people I didn't already know, I don't feel the need to go out and do this work anymore. 
Mm. I mean, maybe partly that's partly because I just turned 70 years old and maybe that's a trigger to like, hey, you're you're adult <laughs> enough not to have to do so many things you don't want to do. But I, I, I think it just. Yeah, go ahead. No, uh, please finish that thought. I was just going to say, I, I think one of the things COVID did for me is it stripped away uh, uh, the stuff I didn't want to do, even though I didn't know I didn't want to do it and help me clarify what's what really brings me joy in the in my life and to focus more on that than on earning a living. I wonder how many other people are going having the same kind of experience. I hear it from others, but I I travel in unusual circles. I don't mean travel. I mean, I, I know unusual people and, you know, people who tend to be introspective and like, you know, staying home and doing their spiritual practices and reading and whatnot. I wonder if that's going to be the case with uh, a broad number of people. You have a column called Roadside Assistance um, and people write in. What have you been hearing? from people this past year? What are their biggest challenges? What's the, the biggest learnings that you're uh, what, coming What's into? coming to the column, Roadside Assistance for the, spiritual, on your, for the Spiritual Traveler, is that how do I grieve mm. when my family members die and I can't be there? I mean, that is a very, I mean, it's, it's profound, it's sad, it's poignant and unfortunately, all too common. You know, people email me or, yeah, they email. I don't get letters really, but they email me and it's, you know, my aunt died, which is true for me personally. Mm. Uh, my mother died, my father died, a sibling died, a, a friend died, and I can't go. And yeah. I'm watching a funeral on Zoom. I mean, I, I won't presume to uh, present someone else's situation, but but I had the same thing. My aunt died of covid and I watched strangers bury her at a distance. You know, I watched on Zoom mm. while the, the funeral, the, uh, the graveyard folks, you know, put, put her body in a, you know, lowered the casket into the grave and covered her all up. And there was a, a rabbi in one part of her city and a cantor in another part of her city. And our family gathered all over the, the place, uh, just, you know, via Zoom. It was cold and everyone was doing their best. I, this is not an attack a slight on the clergy. Everyone was doing uh, their best to, to make this a meaningful event, but it wasn't. And it was just watching a, a screen and it, it was horrible. And uh, so people are writing and saying, so I, I went to the funeral via Zoom, but I didn't grieve. I was a passive observer. I couldn't, nobody held me. I couldn't hold anybody. Nobody handed me a Kleenex. I didn't even feel like crying because it was like I was watching a show. Um, that's a major thing that, that I'm, that I'm hearing uh, from, from people for the magazine. And what do you tell people? Because um, somebody in your position has to deal with people who suffer loss and grief all the time. And our listeners uh, right now, many of them have, like you, lost people during this past year. And if they haven't, they'll lose people later, or they did in the past. What do you tell people, especially during this period? Well, what I try to do is offer them a practice that they can do for their 
the deceased loved one and also for their own benefit. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of things you could talk about. One is too long to present you know, here. Uh, it's something that, that I created myself for myself based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, something that you can recite or read because it is long. You can read to the deceased even at a distance with the, uh, I don't know, you want to say the assumption or the conceit that somehow because we are all interconnected, your beloved can resonate to what you're saying. But mm. even if that isn't true, you will resonate to what you're reading. So, so there's that one. But just meta practice, you know, the Buddhist uh, meta practice, which I don't do in the Buddhist way, and I can explain that very simply. But the idea of sending blessings to someone living uh, or deceased is, I think, a very powerful practical uh, thing that one can do. I, I mean, I did it before COVID, years before COVID. I mean, I was sat with my dad on his deathbed and I held his hand and I did meta practice. Now, the way I was, I mean, I was taught to do it through a Buddhist, in a Buddhist context, but the way I actually practice comes from uh, Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who was my, you know, Rebbe, my guru in Judaism. And he took the idea and he changed the verses. So what, what I said to my dad and what I encourage people to say uh, in, in any situation where it makes sense, um, you know, you visualize the deceased or you visualize your family members who are still alive and you say to those, in, for, you know, as individuals, you say it one at a time, you say to the, your beloved, may you be free from fear, may you be free from compulsion, may you be blessed with love. May you be blessed with peace. I mean, it's that mm. simple. Free from mm -hmm. fear, free from compulsion, blessed with love, blessed with peace. I find that a very powerful practice for myself. I mean, we don't have to go into it because it's a longer story, but it changed my life and it changed my relationship with my dad specifically. But it's, it's a relationship for the you know changing practice. And the way Reb Zalman taught it, you use... Um, fear and compulsion because when you're afraid you are your your behaviors become compulsive you're just responding to fear as opposed to the reality of the moment uh, and when fear is gone love is present so you you'll be free from fear and then you're blessed with love and when love is present compulsivity ends so and, and when compulsivity ends you're blessed with peace so free from fear free from compulsion blessed with love blessed with peace and that's what I, I offer them. Um, you know, you can sit, you can watch the funeral, the Zoom call ends, and then you could sit quietly for a while thinking of your loved one and then go through the family members who are all grieving and send them that meta blessing. And I think that's a powerful way mm. to, to engage with this stuff, even when it isn't COVID times, but certainly when it is. And uh, in the Buddhist context, when they do metta practice, it's not just um, when you suffer a loss like that. It's, right. it's, a, it's, it's a regular practice that people do to cultivate compassion. And uh, presumably, you're, you're, it, it's transformative for the person doing it. And um, as you said, uh, it, it's a conceit to think that they may also it, the practice may also be affecting the people you're visualizing or the people you're you're keeping 
uh, in your heart at that time. Am I yeah. correct? Yeah. I mean, I it's my experience that all life is a manifesting of a non-dual aliveness. So everyone is interconnected, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. We inter-are. And, you know, you could take the, the analogy of throwing a pebble into a pond and the ripples go out far beyond where the pebble hit the water. And so what you're doing in meta practice and other kinds of things like that Tonglen or maybe different prayer practices from different traditions. But what you're doing in that context is dropping a pebble of compassion in the pond of aliveness. And those ripples will reach out to the people that you're you're thinking of while you're doing it. I mean, I have no proof of that, but I don't, I don't right. need proof. I mean, it's just a, it, it, it's a self, it works on, on the doer, if not on the person that you're doing it, for whom you're doing it. But I, I think it does reach them. I, I got a sense, and of course, all of this is just your own egoic projection, but I got a sense holding my dad's hand doing this, even though he no longer spoke, he was on, I don't, you know, I don't even know what unconscious means, but he couldn't communicate in the normal way. But I felt uh, a relaxing in his of his body as as I was doing this. Uh, I I felt, or you could say, I wanted to feel. But I, you know, I'm going to give my I'm going to take my experience at face value. I felt that he was surrendering into or being surrendered into his own dying with a sense of being surrounded by by meta by loving kindness right and i think even um, healthcare practitioners uh, who are even secular people they always encourage people to speak to their loved one who are in coma or may not with the assumption that something comes through so that, yeah that, and that's why in the longer thing that i that i offer you know you're like in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you're addressing the person and you're saying, look, you're dying and this is what's happening to you and um, trust the process and listen to my voice and you're loved. You know, I mean, you, you give them encouragement uh, as they go through this transition. What's interesting to me after your introduction is the whole notion of who's dying and what, <laughs> what's being transformed. I mean, you said that we are eternal beings with an earthly curriculum. Now I don't know exactly what you have in mind, but <laughs> but I don't I don't think we're separate. I think that you and I, and everything else, but but you and I are both manifestings of the same dynamic process. You know, being as a verb, not being as a noun, and the earthly part of it is simply part of the infinite manifesting. But there is no in my in my view. There is no Rami that survives my physical death. Uh, Rami is simply a temporary expression of the infinite aliveness that happens while, you know, in the X number of years that, that I'm conscious on the planet. But it's a temporary manifestation. Uh, the soul does not exist in any, in any form separate from the absolute. Which, well, this is, of course, is a theological issue that we could debate um, or else uh, make a, a pledge that whoever dies first will let the other one know uh, if there's anybody, if there's an embodiment to, to do the communicating. 
But it also uh, changes, I would think, in doing a practice like the one you described, uh, once the loved one is gone, is there then any value to doing uh, the metta practice for that person? So it depends. Well, I would say yes for two reasons. One, I'm still there and I'm benefiting from it. But the other is I'm not sure what gone means. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how long does it take for the egoic self to dissipate? I, mean, I, I, I don't know. So is it does it happen as soon as the body uh, ceases to breathe, as soon as there's no brain activity? Maybe, but I don't know. So I just uh, err on the side of, um, I don't know what on, on the conservative side that maybe the <laughs> there's consciousness that survives for for a while. I mean, you could even make a case, and I wouldn't argue against it, if you said that um, the aliveness of which each of us is uh, continues to uh, happen on multiple dimensions. So mm-hmm. you know that that this is just one, the earthly dimension is just one dimension that, uh, the aliveness experiences as Rami and there'll be other dimensions. But my real concern is not the dimensionality issue, but the issue of separateness. I just don't experience anything as being other. Got it. Um, let's switch topics a bit. Two of your books, at least two that I know of, are about addiction and recovery. And uh, from what I gather, uh, substance abuse is uh, has been during pandemic and often is uh, during any challenging time a, uh, a, a possible issue that people have to contend with. What do you tell people? What would you like listeners to know about dealing with uh, destructive uh, compulsions and addictions? Well, I mean, that's a several hour conversation in and of itself. I'm sure. You know, the, the first thing, though, is if you're going to use, as I would, you know, the word, word compulsion, you don't have control over it. So you're not don't don't turn it into. Uh, a self-critical, self-hating, self-loathing uh, experience, you know? So, I mean, I'm, I'm a food addict. I'm, I'm in Overeaters Anonymous, so much for the anonymous part, since I just said that. But, <laughs> uh, and, and I find 12-step to be a very, very helpful system of practice, because the cool thing about, self, of, about uh, 12-step is less theory and, and much more about practice. I think that, um, or, or what I would tell someone is, if you're locked into this compulsive behavior, there is a way to get out. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the Four Noble Truths. You know, life is dukkha, life is stressful, suffering, whatever you want to, however you want to translate that. It's caused by your compulsivity, your your addictions, and then the Third Noble Truth is there's a way out, and that's the Four noble truth of the eightfold path of the of the fourth of the four noble truths or in this context it's the 12 steps of uh, originally alcoholics anonymous so there's there's hope if you want to you know engage in the practices that will bring you hope but i would say one other thing just to you just to the audience the listener that 12 step isn't just about brand named addictions that 12-step, if you read the big book, 
there's one there's lots of stuff in the big book that people like i'm sure there's stuff that they don't like it's a very you know it reflects the times in which it was written as well as the author but bill w in the big book has this line that i think is absolutely crucial he says the first thing you have to do is stop playing god hmm. that to me is the universal addiction that we're all playing God. In other words, we're all trying to control the, uh, our life, which, and the only way you can do that is to control all the lives around you to make things turn out the way you want them to turn out. And you can't control any of that, self or other. And so the real addiction is the addiction to the lowercase s self. Uh, and, and we have to break that. And the, the way to break that is the way to break any addiction. First, you have to experience rock bottom in one at, in one way or another. And when I say rock bottom, I don't mean it. It, I, it sounds like it's a once uh, and for all thing, and then you get out of it. But I don't experience that way. I think rock bottom is is basically what Ramdas might call fierce grace. You know, the, the the grace of the universe continually bringing me to this rock bottom to my knees, to the realization that I cannot control uh, what's going on within me or around me. I don't control my thoughts. I don't control my feelings. Uh, I certainly don't control anyone else's. So ultimately, what rock bottom brings us to is the grace of being surrendered to the greater reality in which all beings exist. And that is the liberation from the addiction to playing God and the, the addiction to control. And then you live your life like a good Taoist, right? <laughs> you, you live your life in, in the, with the, the, the singular practice of what the Chinese call Wei Wu Wei, you know, non-coercive action. And you work with the, you know, you, you, what do you call it? You just work with the flow of the universe in order to bring about as much, alleviate as much suffering as you can and bring about as much goodness as, as you can without taking, without claiming anything, without saying, I, you know, I can control this. I can make it turn out the way I want. I, I think 12 step is a brilliant system when, and I'll just say one more thing about it, when it is understood more deeply than it often is. So that you want to, we can explore that a little bit if you want. Yes, I'd, I'd like to come back to that, um, but we have to take a quick break now. And I will say that's one of the things I always like talking to you about is you take commonplace things more deeply. And um, it's like Ramakrishna used to tell people, go deeper, go deeper. And uh, you're a good catalyst for that. We have to take a break and we'll be back in a minute with Rabbi Rami Shapira. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with your host, Phil Goldberg. We're back with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rami, we were talking about uh, 12 steps and uh, addiction and recovery. Uh, first question is, why don't you name the books of yours that deal with this subject so people can look further? And then I have a question. And that question is, um, you said being surrendered as opposed to surrendering. And I think that was a, a, a deliberate choice of language, and I want you to elaborate on surrender. Okay, I can do that easier than give you the titles of the books, because I, I, <laughs> I can see them on my shelf, but not clearly enough to read the title. So the first one I wrote on 12-step uh, was uh, Recovery, the Sacred Art. And it was part of a series the publisher was doing called The Sacred Art. So every book I wrote for them always had that in the title. Uh, and it was, a, it was an overview of, of the 12 steps from an interfaith perspective. So what are the Buddhists, how can, how can you know, meta practice help us with the 12 steps? How can, um, something, how can something from Christianity help us with the 12 steps? So I was, I was drawing from different traditions to enrich the way we might approach each of the steps. Then I wrote a book years after uh, called Surrendered, just what you said in the passive, Surrendered. And that has a long subtitle, which has nothing to do with the sacred art, but Surrendered. And I forget what the subtitle is. I uh, have it right in front of me. Oh, it's okay. So what is it? Shattering the Illusion of Control and Falling into Grace with 12-Step Spirituality. Absolutely brilliant title. I don't know who came up <laughs> with that, but... I think that's good. That's and that's what the book is about. Uh, I use the passive because my experience in general, but my experience with 12 step showed me that I'm not in control. You know, 12 step says turn this over. I'm going to turn this over to my higher power. Well, I discovered that I can't because the me that would be turning this over is the addicted me. If I could do that, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be addicted. I wouldn't be an addict. And the higher power to whom I turn this over is God, in 12-step in language, God as I understand God. But who's the I that understands God? It's the addicted me. So it's all ego. Now, I don't think this is really the work of 12-step, but this is the superficial reading. It's all about ego. So when I go to a meeting, you know, if you're a Christian, uh, you're going to say, I mean, I, I, where I live, almost everyone is, is Christian and, and certain kind of evangelical Christian. And so the higher power is Jesus. And they always talk about Jesus and we do the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, and that's fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. It's not my higher power. But then I don't think I think all of our gods of our understanding are only that. They're just that. It's your understanding. So I'm not moved or offended by it. I know that in uh, still here in Middle Tennessee, because it's so Christian in so many 12-step groups, there are separate Jewish groups where you're not going to hear uh, that my higher power is, is Jesus. And you'll hear some other version of higher power. But to me, it's all an egoic projection. So eventually, 
you you experience the fact that I'm not free because I can't make myself free. I'm still playing God. And I have to stop doing that, but I don't have the capacity to stop doing that. So you keep hitting rock bottom until eventually you are shattered or if you like Christian language, you're crucified on the cross of your own egoic madness. And that that lowercase s self is shattered. And out of that brokenness, through the grace of the universe, right? Out of that brokenness comes the liberated capital S self that has been, you know, the little, the little self has been surrendered and in its place comes this much larger, uh, awakened self. I'm not talking about full enlightenment. I don't know what that is, not, you know, but, but you're, you're not this trapped, uh, egoic self. The other thing that when I talk about going deeper, the very notion of a higher power is misleading Mm. because it, it, it suggests a hierarchy that I don't think exists in the, in the universe, that God isn't higher than us. I mean, the God of our understanding may be, because it's a projection of your ego. If, you're, if you've been trained to imagine something bigger than you who rewards and punishes you or whatever, then that's your, the God of your understanding. But my experience, not my understanding, but my experience is of a greater power, something larger than me, but not other than me and not higher than me, just bigger than me. So the analogy I like is the Hindu analogy of the ocean and the wave. So mm-hmm. the, the, the greater power is the ocean and you and I and every other being human and otherwise on the planet are waves of that ocean. Uh, what I want to do is get in touch with the oceanic because the oceanic is never stuck. The oceanic is never addicted. And as you were saying earlier in a different context, you're already that, tatvam asi in the Sanskrit. You're it. You're, you are already the oceanic. You don't have to get something that you're lacking. You simply have to realize who you really are. And you don't have to realize it ultimately by erasing yourself, but by allowing yourself to be surrendered to this greater reality of which you are a part. And then Rami, in my case, Rami gets to function much more healthily mm. as an expression of this, this greater power than Rami did as a a deluded person who thought that he was apart from rather than a part of this greater power. I like that greater instead of higher. Excuse me. Now, in the course of the half hour or so we've been together, you've touched upon at least four of the major spiritual uh, traditions. And I introduced you as um, an exemplar of interspirituality and uh, what I used to call trans-traditional spirituality. So in your personal work and in your teaching, you draw from all the, the traditions, all the perennial wisdom of the uh, world's uh, spiritual pathways. What is the what are the advantages of exploring traditions outside the one you were born into or the one you adopted? And uh, for people listening who are uh, tempted to explore beyond those boundaries or already doing it, what are the advantages and what are the pitfalls? 
Well, the advantages are that you get to see your own tradition in a more nuanced way. So, for example, I mean, my primary practice is Jewish. Um, so, for example, every week I have a Shabbat on Saturday, Friday night, Saturday. And when I was growing up, because I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, there were strict, this is what Shabbat is, right? And this is what you do, and this is what you don't do. But I've, I don't approach it that way anymore. And as I was trying to explore the deeper meaning of what the, a, a weekly Sabbath is about, my study of Taoism led me to realize that what the Sabbath could be, for me, what the Sabbath could be would be a day devoted to Wei Wu Wei, to living without coercion, to effortless action, uh, to not trying to, you know, to, for one day a week, don't play God. You know, I'm mixing my, my traditions here. But uh, so it allowed me a much deeper realization of what that day could be without erasing what Judaism has to offer around it, but now seeing how to use those things in the tradition uh, to accomplish the, the way I read the tradition as an opportunity for living your day without, without coercive action. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. I'd love to hear more. Well, so bring on some other person. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> that surely isn't the only advantage just doing it. Oh, oh, back to the big question. No, no. Uh, uh, well, well, that is a big advantage, though, to see yes. uh, a, a more nuanced view of your of your own tradition. Um, you also see where uh, this is my experience anyway. You also get a chance to see where your tradition, your practice that you inherited as a Jew, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, the, where that practice is pointing. I mean, there's two ways to look at being anything, but let's just say being Jewish. You can look at being Jewish as an end in and of itself. That Judaism says do X. I do X because I'm a Jew. And the point of doing X is to be an observant ex-doing Jew. So I keep kosher, you know, because I, well, I grew up that way, but uh, I keep kosher. And you could say, well, you keep kosher because Jews keep kosher. And so keeping kosher makes you a better Jew. It's just circular. It doesn't go anywhere. But the more I studied the traditions of kashrut, the traditions of kosher, you realize it's all about, uh, on, a, on a deeper level, it's all about lifting up your consuming to the highest environmental and ethical standards you can muster. And, you know, the, you, you see this, all these an, uh, ancillary, is that the right word? There's all these, mm -hmm. these principles that are engaged with, with keeping kosher, one of them being something called tsar um, ba'alei chayim, which means not causing animals unnecessary suffering which should lead you to be a vegetarian in my mind, which is what I am, but not causing any animal unnecessary suffering. Then, see, if, stop me if I'm not un, uh, answering your question. Then I had an interview on my podcast uh, with uh, the Tibetan Buddhist monk, oh shoot, um, Matthew Ricard. Ah, yes. And he, I, I interviewed him several times, but one time we were talking, he had just published his book on the Tibetan tradition of rescuing animals. 
and in that way alleviating their suffering by getting them out of the place of suffering and rescuing them. And I thought, wow, that's part of kosher too. And how do I do that as, as part of enriching my understanding of how I live a kosher life? So it, it helps you look beyond the, the, the circular, you know, the, the just I'm doing this because I'm a Jew and it makes me a better Jew to say, no, this stuff is really about being more human. And this is being Jewish isn't about isn't for the sake of being Jewish. Being Jewish is for the sake, as it says in Genesis 12, three, for being a blessing to all the families of the earth, human and otherwise. So my goal is to be a blessing. Judaism is a vehicle for doing that. Now, having been raised Jewish, it's my primary vehicle for doing that. But the study of other traditions allows me, brings me constantly back to the bigger goal of being a blessing. And then oftentimes just enhances the way I can do my Jewish practice by learning from these others. The problem is that you end up... And, the danger of this is, is it just becomes an, an exercise in collecting practices right. without any overarching um, vision. So you say, oh, I like this practice in Hinduism. I'm going to do that for a little while. And I like this practice in Christianity. I'll do that one. And I'm going to do, you know, something with Ramadan or you know, whatever it is from the different religions. And you're just doing it like, uh, like it was a buffet. You know, oh, I have a little of this and a little of that. But it doesn't have an, an overarching arching goal and therefore it doesn't serve any greater purpose than your own. Oh, I don't know. It just keeps you interested or keeps you distracted or it's just, you know, it's just, it's mm -hmm. very superficial to me. I don't think, let me just get one more piece out now that I'm saying this. I don't think you have to pick one tradition. I think the Dalai Lama used to say this. I don't know if he still does pick one tradition and go deeply into it. I don't care about that. My concern is pick your goal. So for me, be a blessing. Pick your goal and go deeply into that using whatever tools you can find in your own tradition or others to achieve that ultimate goal. So the depth is for the goal rather than the religious tradition. Got it. And uh, the depth is the key factor here. Uh, Houston Smith, and uh, who we, I think we both knew well, I know we yeah. know of certainly um, used to talk about the dangers of cafeteria religion and and that buffet image you brought up. Uh, if you just you know sample all the goodies, you you may not. Uh, first of all, you may overeat and get sick, but you you may not get the proper nutrition that you need. And so there's a, a certain discernment quality that that I think we all need when we explore beyond familiar grounds. And uh, Sri Ramakrishna used to say, you know, uh, if you just dig uh, holes in a lot of places and never go deep enough to get to the water you're looking for, then uh, the exploring is superficial. So thanks for that. That is, uh, you know, the rewards and, and uh, down, uh, pitfalls of, of exploration. Uh, Rami, um, you talk about in one of your book is called, what books is called, uh, How to Be a Holy Rascal. What is a holy rascal and how does one become one? <laughs> a holy rascal is someone who doesn't, is someone who knows 
that the religious emperor has no clothes. <laughs> a holy rascal is like Dorothy's dog Toto in the movie version of The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and the Scarecrow and all and, and, and Toto are all standing in front of the curtain and they're hearing this great and terrible wizard, you know, all that <laughs> instilling fear in everyone. And then Toto, while the humans are shaking or the other people are shaking, Toto goes up and he pulls the curtain back and reveals a little man with a big megaphone. A holy rascal is pulling the curtain back on the little men, and I, and I mean that literally, not people, the little men and their big megaphones that run what I call big religion, the way you speak of big pharma and big agra. Uh, <laughs> and and it's, it's trying to free yourself from the, um, the madness that, that organized religion uh, is often steeped in. So holy rascals do it with humor, not with anger, but they have a basic stance that, um, that religions are, are commodities and they're, they're looking for shelf space. You know, it's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, just to pick three. It's like Coke, Pepsi, and A&W, assuming that Coke and Pepsi, Pepsi don't own A&W, I can tell no. <laughs> you know, or, or Dr. Pepper or something like that. But it's, you know, it's just, it's, they're all brown sugar water and they have different labels and they make these different claims. <clears throat> you know, Coke says, we're the real thing. Well, that's like the Jews saying, you know, we're the chosen people or the Christians saying uh, there is no salvation outside the church. Or when Jesus says, or they have Jesus say in the gospel, uh, you know, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, that's just exclusive marketing. But it's just marketing. And a holy rascal recognizes that and tries to, to make that clear to anyone who will listen. <coughs> Excuse me. That the, the institutions of religion oftentimes are all about, if not all the time, are all about uh, power and control. And you have to go to the mystics of any given religion to get uh, beyond power and control and to be primed for the experience of being surrendered into the grace of the infinite aliveness. So holy rascals are kind of the court gestures in... Um... Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, right. I mean, th that that's that's the role. You use humor to poke. You, you use humor to reveal to people what they already knew. Most people know that the claims of their religion are silly. I mean, just to imagine, just to stick with my own. I, I have a book that's looking for a publisher. Uh, my my agent's seeking a publisher, but so far no one's willing to take it. Uh, it's called. Judaism without craziness. <laughs> and the idea is, you know, what's crazy? What, what are the crazy aspects of Judaism? And you could do this with other religions, but I'm a rabbi. So, you know, the, the notion that there is a God out there in the universe somewhere who chose one people from the Jews, from among all the people of the earth, but, you know, they didn't have a concept of, of other planets. We'd have to say maybe that God, this, this God chose the Jews among all the possible species of, of beings in the universe uh, to receive his, and it's almost, you know, always 
male, his one and only revelation and the deed to the Holy Land in perpetuity. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. What kind of God is that? So, you know, so that's what that book is about. But that's what a holy rascal tries to do is, is that silly? I mean, even even who, you know, the whole question of who's a Jew, that my mother determines whether I'm a Jew or not. That makes no sense to me. <laughs> right. My, my mother was um, she was a, a, a dental, not an assistant. She, she ran the office right of a, of a dentist office. Does that make me an office manager? No, I have to like train <laughs> to be an office manager. It's not in my DNA. So just because my mother is Jewish, I don't think that has anything to do with, you know, whether I'm going to choose to be Jewish or not. I think, I think being Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever it is, it's a, it's a choice you make to label yourself in a certain way based on certain behaviors that you engage in. And it's, it's not something you inherit from, you know, through, through your, through blood, through your DNA. So all those things to me are just crazy things. And holy rascals try to point out the crazy, not to uh, insult the religion, but the free to free the religion from the capture of the marketers and the, and the power players that dominate it. And without throwing out the baby with the bathwater, that's I always like that about the concept of holy rascal. It's not saying, oh, all of the religions have all these foolish things and therefore abandon the whole enterprise. You you point to uh, the the deeper. Yeah, right, right. I mean, the, if you read a religion, and obviously this is just my opinion, but if you read a religion literally, it's ridiculous. If you read a religion metaphorically, it's they're almost always brilliant. So I remember once I was with Father Thomas Keating at a workshop, an interfaith workshop we were doing with other teachers in uh, Texas somewhere. And someone in the group said, to him, they asked him a question specifically, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ absolutely essential to everyone's salvation? And, you know, in an interfaith setting, you don't want to say yes, right? That's, <laughs> that's not good because everyone else is like, wait a minute, you know, now we have to be Christians. So he, you know, if you, I mean, you know, Father Thomas and, and he's a very nice guy and he managed to dance around it. But it was annoying to me. So I said, can I answer the question? So he said, yeah. He said to the group, the rabbi will now answer the question, is the death <laughs> and resurrection of Jesus Christ absolutely essential to everyone's salvation? And my response was, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to everybody's salvation, but not sufficient. Jesus, the myth, the story of Jesus on the cross and then the resurrection, but specifically the crucifixion. Uh, the story of the crucifixion is, 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 a, is paradigmatic of the spiritual process that, you know, being on the cross, you're on, it's hit like hitting rock bottom. It's the shattering of the small s self. And then Jesus says in the uh, original gospel, which is Mark, the only thing Jesus says on the cross in Mark is, in, in Hebrew, he quotes the, the book of uh, Psalms, Psalm 22, verse 1. He goes, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
<clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the dark night of the soul. That's the mm. the confrontation with, um, you know, the the all the powers that stand arrayed against your your being surrendered. You know, the, and and what he's saying, back to the twelve step, he's saying. The God of my understanding, God of my understanding, why have you forsaken me? Well, it's got to forsake you because, like Lao Tzu says, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. Any theology that you hold has got to be shattered on the cross of reality or hit rock bottom in such a way that it's shattered and you're, and you're free from it. Only when you die to everything you know do you have the possibility of being resurrected? And so Jesus models that. That's why Jesus says, follow me. Um, some Bibles have him say, believe in me, where it really should mm -hmm. be translated as trust me. But he, more than anything else, he says, follow me. And where is he going? He's going to the cross. Do you trust the teaching enough that you're willing to be crucified and, and then set free? Uh, so it's it is absolutely essential in the sense that it's paradigmatic, but it's not sufficient. You have to do it, Rami. That is a perfect way for a good rabbi to conclude a conversation. <laughs> to honor the rabbi that Jesus was, uh, we have to go now, folks. You can learn more from Rabbi Rami at rabbirami.com and his OneRiverFoundation.org, which has a treasure trove of good information and advice. And be sure to join me next week when we'll have another wise and wonderful guest. Meanwhile, you can find me at my website, philipgoldberg.com. You can sign up for my mailings, learn about what I'm up to, read my books, especially in this context, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. And look at the archive of the podcast I host, uh, Spirit Matters, at spiritmatterstalk.com or the new YouTube channel of Spirit Matters Talk. In the meantime, be well, be strong, be safe. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.